Well, today uh, we're playing a little catch-up with a passage that I skipped at the beginning. Um, It's toward the end of chapter 2. It's right at the end of chapter 2. And being a shorter passage, I was waiting for a communion Sunday to come back to it. And so um, here we are. Um, So our passage in chapter 2 comes immediately following the, the ascension of the prophet Elijah in the midst of fiery horses and chariots up into heaven. Elisha has returned back uh, from the far side of the Jordan. He has parted the waters. He has walked across something like Moses and the Israelites. He's walked across the river on dry land, and he has been given the mantle of Elijah, a double portion of the spirit, um, so to speak, that indwelt Elijah. And this sets us up for these two early events that concern two towns, um, one which will be blessed and the other will be cursed. Would you stand for the, the reading of God's word? So this is 2 Kings chapter 2, 19 through 25. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city And they jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returns to Samaria. Let's pray. Lord, grant us the gift of faith that we may study your word with profit. May we go forth from here in faith, fearlessly adventuring on your great promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So our scripture passage, it begins with the prophet Elisha staying in Jericho, where his presence means blessing. His presence means blessing. So Jericho was a city. It was set uh, in low. Um, it's actually uh, below the Mediterranean seas by something like 1,300 feet. It's just a few miles to the north of the Dead Sea. So it sits uh, very low. And this was the first city. Uh, it was a well-fortified city, a walled city that was attacked and destroyed by General Joshua. And the Israelites, when they first crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And part of the background standing behind this narrative is that after Jericho was destroyed, Joshua issued a curse upon this city. He said, uh, and this is just quoting from Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. So it says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, 
cursed before the Lord, uh, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And as a result of this curse, the town, though it was inhabited, remained unwalled and unfortified for hundreds of years. Well, not long before Elisha um, stays in Jericho, during the reign of Ahab, so uh, roughly maybe two kings back, we are told in 1 Kings chapter 16 uh, this, that in his days, Hile of Bethel, he built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This, the rebuilding of Jericho, was a violation of God's will. The city remained um, uh, It appears that God wanted the city to remain unfortified, in part just as this symbol of how by God's grace and by God's power, he had brought the Israelites into the promised land against great odds. But um, Heil, uh, this builder, uh, must not have thought uh, a whole lot about this curse, and he rebuilds the city. It also seems that God's curse, in some sense, remains on the city as the spring water remains bitter. That is, it's foul, it's it's toxic in some situation. And it's not exactly clear. If you read different versions on this, you're going to see, like in the ESV, it emphasizes how um, it seems to have led to infertility within women. Uh, In other versions, like the NIV, it it talks about the, uh, the, the sterility of the land. And maybe it was both. But the point is, this is kind of like, you know, the ancient world's, you know, version of Chernobyl. That, that this, this land just seems contaminated uh, and under a curse, almost making the city, even though it's like, it's very tropical and beautiful, and today it has citrus trees and, and so forth, um, it, it, it remains almost unha- uninhabitable at this, uh, at this time. And so some of the, the town's leaders, they, they come to Elisha, the city councilman. They see Elisha. Um, this is, we're not sure how long this is after the ascension of Elijah, but apparently he already has this reputation of being the successor to the mighty uh, prophet Elijah. So they come to him and they, is there anything you can do, Elisha, about this this uh, infertility and the unproductivity of the land and, and this water that is bitter. Jericho, um, uh, so Elisha simply asks for a new bowl and some salt. We're not sure why he uses salt. Our, our best guess, so you'll, you'll see if you read kind of the background on this, there are lots of kind of educated guesses about this. I think maybe the best one um, uh, has to do with this reference to Leviticus, where salt is used as a sign of God's covenant. Um, and in Leviticus, it was to be mixed with sacrifices as a sign of the covenant that God had made with his people. In any case, Elisha pours the salt into the spring, and it is purified. No longer is this water bitter. 
And no longer does it cause death or miscarriages. And, and now the land is, it's renewed. Um, it's like it's been reset to its original settings um, so that it becomes productive. The curse that remained upon the city by God's presence and power operating through the prophet Elisha, this curse of bitterness is reversed. The land is healed. It is made new. The poison water is turned into life-giving water. Here you have this illustration of, of um, rivers of living water that are flowing through the prophet Elisha. And again, this all goes back to this idea of Elisha being this kind of mobile counter-temple within the northern kingdom. This is what the temple does, as it pours forth these living waters, um, and, and just in symbol, so waters are associated with the temple, and life-giving waters flow, just as the rivers of life flowed out of Eden at the very beginning. So this is what we see taking place One of the ideas that we should be encouraged by is that if God is able and willing to heal a land that has been placed under a covenant curse, how much more willing is he to do a work of healing in a sinner who feels themselves to be cursed? And maybe there are those here who think because of your past, because of something you have done, you just just can't get past it. You, You just think, yeah, God's he can't forgive this, or his curse continues to abide in my life. Maybe that's why, you know, things just never seem to go right. This is easily part of our thought processes. But this story should remind you that there is someone greater than Elisha who stands ready and willing to reverse whatever curse you perceive to be at work in your life. He specializes, you see, in reversing curses. And again, Elisha is only this glimpse. He's only this little type, a picture of the coming greater Elisha, the God-man who has all authority under heaven and earth. This is good news for the worst of sinners. God can reverse. Whatever background is in your life, Whatever events, whatever, you know, you think connections that you have that just seem to, it's, you just feel like you've got cords pulling you down. This is a reminder. No, this is why Jesus came. He is the, the strong man who cuts the, the lines of, uh, of sin. He redeems us from whatever, you know, holds us back. He fully forgives and he reverses so that life flows. That, uh, and that's exactly what Jesus d- declares. You may, may recall when Jesus appears to the woman at the well at Sychar, he declares in John 14, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, Elisha's modeling for us in the concrete what Jesus says, you know, 800 years later or so. Jesus gives us the life. And so these words uh, given to the woman at the well may be rooted in an earlier passage from Isaiah where the prophet provides the people of God who are in exile, in Babylonian exile, this amazing picture of how God will sustain his people Israel as they make their way through the wilderness of this world. 
So listen to this passage. This is Isaiah 58, uh, verse 11. And the Lord Yahweh will guide you continually. That is through the wilderness, through the exile. He will satisfy your desire in scorched places, barren places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Here's what he's saying. This picture, he says, even as you go through the scorched rubble of this world, where it's barren, where it's lifeless, where it's cursed, I will turn you into an oasis. I will turn you into a garden. And from you, living water will flow. Not only will God provide his people with this life-sustaining water, but in turn, we become life-sustaining water for the people, for the community in which we are placed. And so this is what Jesus is pointing to just a few chapters later in John chapter 7, where he declares, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of her heart, will flow rivers of living water. What he's saying is that you, as you are connected to me, my water flows into you, and then you will water the people around you. You will serve as a water to your neighbors, to your community, to your country. Powerful promises. We bring life to the city as we take opportunities that God gives us to speak the good news concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. Again, this is a picture of the blessings of God's temple-like presence. Not only is Jesus our temple that we need to be connected to, but as a result of that connection, we become a temple presence within the city. The last section of this chapter moves from Jericho to another city, to the outskirts of a town uh, uh, by the name of Bethel. And it's at Bethel that Elisha's presence rather than resulting in this amazing blessing in life, it results in the opposite. It results in curse. Now, for a lot of people, this is a confusing story. And, and let me just tell you right away, I, I, you know, I think you probably will agree that the, the interpretation here is pretty obvious. That, I mean, if you mistreat your pastor, <laughs> bears will get you. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm glad. I wasn't sure you'd find that a joke, but I'm glad you got it. Okay. So why would Elisha lose his temper with a bunch of juveniles to the point of calling out two ferocious bears to maul 42 kids? Well, again, we need to, to look a little bit into the background of this. Don't forget that the city of Bethel was the heart of pagan worship um, it, it was where the, Jeroboam had set up one of his two golden calves. I mean, this harkens right back to the golden calf episode uh, in Exodus. And so this is the center of this kind of cult, idolatrous, false worship um, that, um, that the prophet of the true God, uh, the prophet Elisha, is uh, walking and moving towards. And it's likely... Um, that the people of Bethel were committed. They were proud of their golden calf worship center. And, and it appears that the result of this 
is that they're actually, they're not just tolerant of the biblical worship of Yahweh, according to the covenant and, and according to the scriptures, uh, but they're actually at this point hostile um, to true worship. And this manifests itself in, in these young boys, as is referred to here. Um, it's hard to identify this, um, this phrase, young boys. It appears that it can be applied to uh, individuals somewhere between 10 and 30 um, in some cases. But taking it as it is, um, uh, most scholars look at this as young, you know, um, uh, junior high age, uh, young teenagers, perhaps 12 to 15, something like that. Uh, who are the ones who intentionally, it says they come out of the city. Before Elisha even arrives, somehow they get wind that he's on his way. And they make their, it's not like they're, uh, these aren't kindergartners, you know, playing on the swings. And, they, and, and Elisha just happens to be walking by. No, this is like this large group uh, of young teenagers, young boys that, that flow out of the city intentionally to meet the prophet of God, to meet Elisha with this kind of um, uh, arrogance and, and pride. Uh, that is not unusual for uh, boys of about that age. But th- the point is that these were boys who knew better. These were boys who in the biblical world were young adults, young men. They would, they're responsible and further, though, 42 of the, we're given this number, 42 of these lads were mauled by two bears, which also tells you that these were younger, I would think. I, I find it hard to believe that even two ferocious bears, which is not unusual in this time period, um, but a little unusual that 42 grown men would be um, uh, attacked. I mean, okay, maybe five, 10, right? <laughs> Aren't you going in different directions, you know? And like, if you're not... I, Maybe you deserve to get more. I mean, so anyway, so these are young, um, appears to be young boys. Uh, and though they're 42, it says 42 of them. That is, the 42 that are attacked are just part of a much larger group of young boys that are demonstrating hostility uh, towards Elisha. And when they attack Elisha for being bald... Um, well, apparently uh, in the Near East, this was uh, like slapping somebody in the face. This is one of those insults, you know, culturally speaking, that you don't let go. Um, you know, there are certain insults, if you use, they're fighting words. <laughs> and apparently in this time, you know, hey, baldy, bald head, you know, um, this was fighting words. And, and it's not clear exactly if this was, he'd shorn himself intentionally to grieve um, Elijah. We're not sure. But, but just the point that these are very low uh, insults. These young men would have probably, in their scoffing, been saying something like this. They, they say, go on up, you bald head. Now, it could be they're just saying, get out of town. Make yourself scarce. It could be they're saying this. But given that the same, um, the same Hebrew language is used just earlier of Elijah going up into the, uh, the, this kind of uh, the fiery chariots up into heaven, it may appear that they're actually challenging Elisha to demonstrate his... El- First of all, it sounds like they don't believe that this actually happened to Elijah. And they're challenging Elisha to demonstrate the truth of his prophetic, uh, his prophet status and authority by demonstrating this kind of authority of, of Elijah. 
So to, to, if you were to paraphrase it, they could be saying, ascend you bald head, just as it is pretended that your master did. Away with you, you troublemaker. Ascend baldy, if, if you can. Aren't we funny? Ha, 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 ha. You know? Well, standing in the background of all of this is the law of Moses. In Leviticus 26, the covenant is clear. If you walk contrary to me, the Lord says, and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. This flows right out of the covenant in which the Israelites stood in with God, with Yahweh, that they've rejected, that they do not believe. And so, in fact, Elisha is answering the request. He is demonstrating his authority as a true prophet of God, standing, in some respects, in the shoes of Moses himself. And in so doing, he says, I will demonstrate that the covenant is true by calling upon this covenant curse upon you. These ruffians are threatening, they are deeply dishonoring God's anointed man, which is more than just attack. Say they're doing more than just attacking a man. They're attacking a man who holds a particular office. And because he holds this office of prophet, they are also then attacking God. They are attacking God's authority. And there are times, in many cases, where the prophet forbears. We just saw this um, uh, the last time when the Syrians come and try to capture him and, and dishonor him through this, but he demonstrates this amazing grace and treats them as guests and releases them. So why not here? <laughs> why doesn't Elisha turn the other cheek? And this would serve as a warning, not just for the Israelites of Elisha's time, but for believers of every generation. God's grace is called grace for a reason. When God forgives us by his grace, he is doing something that we do not deserve. And what that means is, is that God is under no obligation, you see. The terms of justice do not require God to demonstrate grace, even though he loves to do so. But he is under no obligation and every now and then you see these stories of judgment, this, the holiness of God breaking out against the people, just as it did with Moses when the people were uh, worshiping the golden calf and, and thousands are struck down when Moses returns from the mountain and sees them worshiping around the idol. Or with Elijah, when the Israelites try to capture him and bring him to King Ahaziah, two companies of 50 men are destroyed by fire from heaven. Elijah, Elijah says, if I am the man of God, if I am the ish of God, let the fire of God, the ish of God fall upon you. And twice it does. All of this serves as a warning that we must not presume on God's grace. He is not required to give it. All of this also reminds us that when we approach the Lord, 
God is holy. He's like high voltage electricity. You know, approach with care. Approach with a reverence and awe, the New Testament says, as it describes the way in which we are to approach God in our worship. In Second Chronicles, just to show you that this serves as a message that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom ultimately did not take to heart. In Second Chronicles 36, it provides us this little editorial of why God brought the Babylonians down upon uh, the, 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 uh, of Judah and conquered and brought them into exile. And this is what it says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. That is, over and over, God kept sending his prophets to speak and declare the word of good news and also the word of warning. Why did he do this? Because God loved his people. But they kept, and get the language here, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with their sword. This was a little parable, a little warning of what would happen if the people continued in their persistent unbelief and their hostility towards Yahweh and to his prophets. Now, sadly, this mocking of the prophets did not end when the northern and southern kingdoms were exiled. It continues right up to the time of Jesus. And so you may recall that Jesus, in his moment of greatest anguish, was mocked and tormented by the crowds while he hung on the cross. Do you remember what they said to him? Those who passed by the cross derided Jesus, wagging their their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, you know, interesting. The young boys say, go up out of here. Listen to this. If you are the son of down, son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. Now, rather than calling down a curse, Jesus responds this way. And he gives us an example of how we should respond when we are mocked. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, with that being said, the Israelites persisted in their unbelief. And the result of this is finally God's patience comes to an end. And in 70 AD, the covenant curses of Deuteronomy are triggered. And God brings the the Roman armies to bear under General Titus uh, on the city of Jerusalem. And all those who are caught inside the city are put under siege. They're either killed, crucified in horrible ways, and then taken as captives to Rome. This is what Peter, I think, is in part talking about, that Jesus is not this neutral person. When we come to Jesus, we have to decide. There's not a neutral position. Either you decide to follow him and to find life with him by his temple presence, 
or you reject him. And the result is then Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling. Listen to how Peter puts this. New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Peter writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. That is, they reject the good news. They reject Christ as they were destined to do. The message then for all of us is to understand that God loves the world. He has provided a redeemer in whom we find blessing and life. It's the only safe place to stand. This is a wonderful opportunity. It's an available, the gospel says, to every single person who believes the message, who puts their faith in the Messiah. And to reject this redeemer means we are left in our sin and in our guilt, and then we are exposed to the threat of God's just judgment. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you have called us to depart from evil, to seek the kingdom of your beloved Son. May we receive this day that divine word of comfort and promise that is only found by those who humble themselves and honor Jesus the King. Under the shadow of his cross, may every burden be lighter, and may every duty be more desirable and that we might be found faithful. And we pray this for the sake of his great name. Amen.